Amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to see you as always. And as always, I want to invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, we are continuing in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. Today, we're going to be working our way through Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And uh, right before we read that, I just want to let you know a real exciting announcement for us uh, this week. Uh, we have secured a call for a new worship pastor, and uh, we are going to be uh, telling you more about that. We're going to not tell you some details right now because his church hasn't uh, been notified yet, but we do want you to hear the answer uh, to your prayers uh, for uh, this over a year now that we have been searching, and uh, he is going to be uh, up here on this uh, platform stage leading us at the end of May. And uh, we'll tell you more between now and then, but we want you to be able to look forward to that. So, amen. amen. Well, let's uh, read the word of God uh, together, starting in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21. The apostle Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen, amen. amen. Well, I told you last week that today we would be studying what is the most important passage in all of Romans. And some would say it's the most important passage in the whole Bible. And maybe you sense that as you heard Paul's words read, it's an incredible, amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? Just to kind of keep you tracking with Paul's argument, the flow of his thought in Romans, I want to remind you that uh, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20, where we ended last week, we've been talking about the fact that we are great sinners. Now, we get to the really good stuff. Now, starting in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, we're going to learn that we have a great Savior. See, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 showed us the universal problem of sin. And starting today in verse 21, we're going to see the universal solution, which is Jesus Martin Luther said that Romans 3, 21 to 26 is, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. The scholar Leon Morris said it is possibly the most important single passage ever written. Another scholar named C.E.B. Cranfield rightly calls this the center and heart of the whole letter. He says that we see the innermost meaning of the cross right here. Michael Byrd as I told you last week, says this is the epicenter of Paul's gospel. In other words, in these verses, what we're going to see is what makes the gospel such good news. And the reason for that is that chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, tell us how to be right 
with God. How to be right with God. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, he said that this passage contains the very heart of the Reformation, the very, the very core and center of what caused uh, him to protest against the Roman Catholic Church over 500 years ago and eventually to separate from it. He, he, he believed that the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted this truth, and it's a truth about which Roman Catholics and Protestants still disagree uh, today. Some of you over time have asked me at different times, I grew up Catholic, and just tell me what, what is like the biggest difference between what Protestants and Catholics believe, between what Southwinds teaches and what the Catholic Church teaches. And, and I want to say we always want to be grateful to any heritage that anyone brings uh, where they have been taught to know and love uh, the truth of God's word, but you're going to hear today the answer to that question based on Romans 3, 21 to 26. In addition, these verses answer a question that I often get from people who are outside the faith. Uh, people will ask, well, why do you Christians make such a big deal about Jesus? And, and like, how can you say that Jesus is the only way? Sometimes uh, people will say, I get that people need God. You know, everybody, it seems, really wants some kind of transcendence, but why Jesus and why are you guys so obsessed with the cross and blood? You're always talking about blood. It sounds kind of superstitious. It sounds primitive to say that someone has to die so that other people can know God. And you know, saying Jesus is the only way, that just seems arrogant. Why can't we all just know God in our own way? And of course, we can, as Christ followers, quote Christ's words, John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we do believe that, and it is true. But I want you to understand that is simply an assertion that Jesus is the only way. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the explanation for why he is the only way. So we're going to walk through these verses. We're going to look at some key words, um, big words. So uh, some of us maybe need to strap up our theological big boy pants right now and get ourselves ready. And we're going to see what Paul is telling us about how we can be right with God. And if you want another heading for it that makes it clear to you, what this passage really is about is the doctrine of salvation. It's about how people are saved. And I, I want to just give you four uh, real basic statements about this. And it starts with something we have been talking about through this series, and it's this, God gives us his righteousness. That's where it has to begin for us to be right with God. And that's where verse 21 begins. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The first two words of verse 21, after all of the bad news, from chapter 118 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, those two words may be the sweetest words in all the Bible, but now. So we've been hearing, you know, all about sin over and over and over again, your sin, my sin, our sin, but now. Paul begins to talk about our hope, our only hope. And you need to understand there is this massive, you, you might, if you're in California, say this kind of tectonic shift that happens here in Romans. But, but it's more than just a, a shift in Paul's argument, more than just like a literary shift. This is a cosmic shift. Something new has happened in the universe. It's never happened before. It's never going to happen again. 
But now, Paul writes, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Paul is saying God has intervened. He is saying that in Jesus, God's righteousness has invaded the world. Paul is saying that the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ changes everything. We had no hope, but now God has intervened. We were dead in our sins, but now our Savior, our Rescuer has arrived. In Jesus, we who are dead in our sin can find hope. Why? Because now God has revealed his righteousness. In Christ, God came for us. And we need to understand, Paul is telling us this, God's righteousness is what everyone needs. It's what we all need. You may remember a few weeks ago, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul told us that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and righteousness, if you haven't seen it yet, is like the dominant theme in Romans. The various forms of, of this word are, 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 are occurring in this letter over around 60 times. And one thing you may want to understand and note as you read and study is that the, the Greek word uh, root word behind righteousness is the same as uh, the word that is behind uh, what gets translated in our translations, uh, words like justification. And you need to know righteousness and justification, these two ideas, they go together. And that's really what these verses today are all about. The shortest and the simplest way I can explain God's righteousness to you is this. It's just about how to be right with God. Simply put, Paul is telling us everyone needs to be made right with God. So how is that going to happen? And throughout human history, that's been the question. And throughout human history, there have been two basic answers that people everywhere have given, either one or the other. People have said either human achievement or divine accomplishment. Either you try to do it, you try to merit it, you try to earn it, human achievement, or you look to another who has done it for you, divine accomplishment, and that, of course, is the gospel. If you were listening carefully, as I read a few moments ago, you may have noticed Paul repeats this word over and over again. Verse 21, the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness given to us, provided for us. In a few minutes, we're going to look at verses 25 and 26, talking about how the Christ uh, the cross uh, magnifies God's righteous character. So these verses we're reading, studying today are telling us that God is righteous and salvation is about being declared righteous before God. Paul also tells us why we need God's righteousness. Romans three twenty three, very familiar verse that says, we are all sinners for all have sinned and fall short. The glory of God I told you last week, I'll tell you again, if you're memorizing a verse as we go through Romans, we're giving you some, we suggest you memorize. This is this week's verse. Maybe you already know it, so good for you. You're one ahead, okay? But this is a verse we need in our hearts because we all need to remember we are all sinners. And that means we all need God's righteousness. 
You've heard before that that word fall short is a word that means in Greek to miss the mark. It also sometimes has the meaning of to come late or to fall behind. And some of you, you know, you come to church, you understand what this is all about because like every Sunday, you come late, right? (laughs) I get that. I understand. Some of you live your lives and it's like, I'm always behind, well, then you understand what Paul is talking about. He's, he's saying, um, you know, we're always missing the mark. We're always showing up late. We're always falling behind. We never catch up to the glory of God. So we need to understand that um, we are not just a little uh, naughty by nature for some of you like OG hip-hop fans. <laughs> Only the old people are laughing right now, I can tell. It's way worse than that. We have fallen way short of the glory of God. And so you need to follow the the logic of Romans. God is perfectly righteous, first of all. Second, God demands perfect righteousness. Third, we are not righteous, Amen? amen? And then fourth, God has provided a righteousness for us in Christ. But how do we receive that? Well, that's the next thing I want you to see. You can write this down. Paul tells us we receive God's righteousness by faith, not works. Paul says again in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What are the next four words? Apart from the law. Apart from the law. And the word law here means Law in principle, law in general. In the Greek text, it doesn't say the law as in the Old Testament. It says law. And so Paul here is, is really talking about any type of trying to earn or trying to work or trying to merit our salvation. And again, this is a universal trait of sinful humanity. If you want to look around at our world and if you understand, want to understand why people do the stuff they do, you always need to remember we are all sinners and we are all always, always, always trying to earn our righteousness. That's the motive behind everything that everyone ever does, even people who overtly hate God, even people who don't even say they believe in God, all of us are always trying to earn our righteousness, always trying to justify ourselves. It's law. Now, you might also call it legalism. We define that in certain ways, but this is kind of in the general way. And here's the thing about legalism. Legal, legalism always ends up in the same place. It will not liberate you. It will always crush you. It is a false gospel. Now, Paul right here is not disrespecting the Mosaic law. He's going to tell us later in Romans, and we're gonna get there, Uh, eventually that the law has purpose and it has value if it's rightly understood. What he is saying is that this, our salvation, God's righteousness cannot be achieved by human works. In fact, if you go back uh, to last week uh, where we ended in verse 20, don't forget Paul is building this argument like layer by layer by layer. He says the law cannot justify us. And he says the reason is the law just shows us what sin is. And that's really what Paul has been trying to demonstrate all the way in Romans up to this point, telling us why the law is an insufficient answer to the universal human problem of sin because the law cannot change our hearts. We, we talked about that and 
because I'm kind and merciful, I won't bring up the illustration that I used that troubled so many of you uh, last week again. If you're one of those people that were bothered by it, if you're not, you get what I'm talking about. But there's another problem with the law besides the problem that it can't change our hearts. And really, this is a huge part of what Paul is zeroing in on these verses. And it's simply this. Our sin leaves us legally guilty before God. We really are guilty. This is not like an imaginary psychological thing that you need therapy to deal with. That's what our culture tries to tell us. Our culture wants to pretend guilt is not a real thing. And so if we can just, you know, do enough self-talk, if we can just get enough, you know, counsel from a certain person who's certified by a board somewhere, you know, that kind of stuff, then we won't be guilty. How come everybody still feels guilty? And the Bible's answer is we are. (laughs) We are guilty objectively in reality. We are guilty because we have all sinned, we're guilty before God, and our guilt has placed us in a, in, in a situation where no amount of good works can repair the damage that we've done. See, sin damages. Maybe you can think about it like this. Imagine that you stole my car and you wrecked it, and that you were arrested, that you're put on trial, and We're all in the courtroom now and you're standing before the judge and you're kind of pleading for mercy. You're you're talking about um, you're talking about what a good person you are, you know, how you hold down a job and how you pay your taxes and you serve on the PTA and you recycle and you help little old ladies across the street, you know, and you say all of this, and I would say in response, well that's fine, but that does not restore what you've stolen and wrecked of mine. And sin, the Bible tells us, steals and it destroys God's glory in the universe. Sin overturns God's justice, this justice that God says in his word is like the very foundation of his creation. Here's one example, Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So God has created the universe to operate in in a certain way. He's built the universe on justice. And so for creation to remain good and stable, justice must be upheld and something has to be done and the law can't fix that. See, all the law can do is show us how messed up our hearts are when we look at it and we see that we, we fall short. The law shows us how far we miss the mark of, of what God has wanted us to be and to do. You know, there's a real sense in which if you understand the law uh, rightly, you will see that it's a precious gift to us because without the law, we end up thinking we're not that bad. Have you ever noticed how nobody really thinks they're bad? And if you challenge someone on that, they invariably will point to someone else who they think is worse than them, right? You know what I'm talking about? I just need to check with you here. Everybody with me right now? Nobody thinks they're that bad. And, you know, if I say to you today as a pastor in a church, hey, say I'm a sinner, you'll say it because you're in church. Try that tomorrow at work and see what happens. 
Nobody thinks they're a sinner. Why? Because we all think we're not that bad. We all think we're really kind of down deep, pretty, pretty good. But the law shows us that we're not. If you're not clear about that, again, we talked about this some last week. You can go back and refer uh, to that, that, that message in some ways. But the law shows us how far we are. And, and that's why the law never works. That's why we, we can never make up for our sin through our works. That's why our only hope is to trust. Our only hope is to have faith and to have faith in Christ. That's what verse 22 is saying. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice the emphasis on faith. He says, he says faith, and then he says for all who believe. He, he brings it in a second time. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. You keep reading through this passage. You continue to see this. Verse 25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you come back next week, we're gonna see it in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. We're gonna see it in verse 31 where it says, do we overthrow the law by this faith? And Paul says, no, not at all. Faith, 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 faith. See, how do you become a follower of Christ. Paul's telling you it's by faith. In a couple weeks, we're gonna get into Romans chapter four, and if you've read it, maybe you know this, but basically the whole chapter, Romans four, is just one big illustration of Abraham being made righteous by what? Faith. So faith is very important. One scholar has pointed out that Right here in verse 22 is the first time in Romans faith has been explicitly tied to Jesus. And we're gonna start seeing it all through Romans now. And I wanna point out one thing that is so important in our culture today. When we say salvation is by faith, it's not a generic faith. You know, people are always telling us, right, you just gotta have faith. Like, faith in what? Faith in the government? No, thank you. Right now as a Giants fan, faith in the Giants, Uh uh-uh. I mean, what good is faith if the object of the faith is not trustworthy? You need to understand, in the Bible, faith is never generic. Faith is always faith in a particular person. We are saved by the object of our faith, and he is Jesus Christ. Faith in him, faith alone. Now, James is going to tell us in his letter that the faith that saves is, is, is always accompanied by fruit, even though it's faith alone, it's never alone. Faith, though, is always the root of any fruit that, that comes forth. I love how here in Romans 3, it says there is no distinction. That's the end of verse 22. He says anyone can believe. It's not by earning. It's not by trying. It's by trusting, and that's for all of us. So here's the third thing that Paul tells us, and this gets really big, and we're gonna slow down and camp out here for a while. He says that God's grace justifies and redeems us. Verse 24, he writes, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, I'm gonna define 
justified in just a, a moment, but I want you now to focus on the concept of grace. It's all by God's grace. It's all given freely to us as a gift. That's how some of your translations render it. We receive God's righteousness just like you receive a gift. We take something that is given to us. How many of you know that God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible? A lot of people think it is. Never was there. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God rescues those who cannot save themselves because we can't contribute anything to our salvation. God is not some self-help guru who comes alongside you to improve your life. He is not a life coach. By the way, I'm not a life coach either. I'm not taking that demotion (laughs) from being a pastor. God is not a life coach. He's a savior. He's our rescuer. He comes to us in our desperate situation. He doesn't say, try a little harder, do a little more, work harder, keep going. He says, no, all you need is need. You cry out to me. And justification is what happens when we receive that gift of grace. Justification, I want you to see here in this verse, is is rooted in God's grace, God's undeserved favor that he bestows on sinners. Salvation is all of grace. We know that from so many places like Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's all a gift. I like what Bonhoeffer says. Grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. And we should never get over this grace. I've been reading, as you can probably tell, about Martin Luther uh, more than usual as I'm going through this letter. And and one writer studying the Reformation, trying to understand why, why it exploded like it did and changed the world like it did, said of Martin Luther that Martin Luther grasped the radical nature of God's grace precisely because he was grasped by it. See, Luther was a guy who never quite got over the fact that God saved him. Have you gotten over that? Are you kind of bored, you know, by salvation? Anybody thinking, why are we talking about all this basic stuff? I mean, I know that. Let's move on to something else. No, there's nothing else. (laughs) This is it. It doesn't get any better than this. And in fact, if you want to make an impact with your life, you need to be like Luther. Don't ever get over the fact that God saved you. That's grace. And this is what our hearts need today. We need to be saturated by grace. This is for a topic for another time. But if it weren't for grace, you would have no assurance of your salvation. Do you understand that? You would have to be working and trying and earning never knowing if you've done enough. But we rest solely today in what Jesus has done in the merits of his work. We rest on his grace. And God's grace changes us. God's grace gives us righteousness and that righteousness changes who we are. It it changes our status. And and, and there's there's a a couple of words I want you to see here that are just enormously important. Um, 
In verse 24, Paul says, and are justified, first word, by his grace as a gift through the redemption, second word, that is in Christ Jesus. So we are justified and redeemed. And Paul puts these two loaded terms into the same flow of thought. And like we could spend weeks on both of these. And so I'm gonna talk about them. Um, What's justification? You need to understand it's a law court metaphor. It's a word taken from that uh, part of life. And again, we see this uh, over and over again. Verse 26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. And those three words, righteousness, just, and justifier, all come from the same root, similar meanings. Uh, Again, next week, we're gonna see more of this. Verse 28, we are justified by faith. Verse 30, since God is the one who will justify Jews and Gentiles. The picture's really simple. God is the judge, and we stand before him as the judged. And by his grace, by faith in his son Jesus, God declares us to be right before him. Uh, Justification, um, I think I first heard sometime in Sunday school, uh, means just as if I'd never sinned. And that is true, but only partially true. Justification also means just as if I've always obeyed. See, justification is different from pardon or forgiveness. You know, pardon is is essentially kind of a negative thing. It means to have your guilt removed, your sin forgiven. Justification, by contrast, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is positive. It means God has given you his righteousness. In other words, it, it's telling us we don't just go from negative to neutral. We go from negative all the way to positive. See, we've not just been forgiven. We have been declared righteous. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. We're justified. So he has declared us forgiven and acquitted and put us into a right relationship with him because of what Jesus has done. And that changes our status. It changes, it changes who we are, our identity. It makes us new people who get to begin enjoying a new creation. Do you see? Luther said this word justified it launched the Protestant Reformation. And I, I, this is where I was, I'm gonna explain to you some differences. Um, the Roman Catholic Church back in Luther's day taught that justification was a process uh, whereby God actually made you into a righteous person. And he did this by, uh, and they use the word infusing his righteousness into you and God did that. He infused through the means of the seven sacraments, the baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, last rites, etc. And they believed eventually through observing the sacraments and doing good works, you would become a righteous enough person that God would declare you justified. And you know, if by the time you died, you weren't righteous enough, like you were still a Raiders fan, something like that, then you would go to purgatory where your sin would be purged from you through fire and suffering. That, that word, purge, a Tory. And they taught this was the, the process of justification. But, but Luther pointed out that's not what the word justification means. He pointed out that's not even how Paul is using it in Romans. And he, he said justification is not a process but a pronouncement. It is a legal declaration where God's righteousness is not infused but imputed 
to us. He said justification is this declaration, this pronouncement that happens all at once, not through a process. And it, it isn't referring, Paul's, uh, Martin Luther said, as well as Paul, uh, to the ongoing transformation of the heart. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. See, justification is a declaration of righteousness now. In justification, God's righteousness, again, just to use these words, you don't use them very often, but it's not infused into us. It is imputed or more common word, credited to us. See, again, if I get accused of a crime and I get hauled into court and I stand trial and the jury declares me innocent of all charges, the judge is gonna pronounce me not guilty. That means I'm cleared all at once. That means I am justified. He's not gonna give me the innocent person a like three-step program through which over time I can become innocent. I am innocent. Now I am justified. I walk out a free man just as if I'd never sinned. And in the gospel, because Jesus' righteousness is credited or imputed to us, we are declared justified. And that, that's where that term, that Latin term that we talked about last week that Luther used, simul justus et peccator, that's where it comes from. It's not that I become righteous enough that God declares me righteous. It is that while I am still a sinner, God declares me righteous because of my faith in Jesus. And this was pictured in the Old Testament process of sacrifice, again, that we talked about, you know, that, that, that image, that, that ritual where once a year a family would bring a lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, and they would lay it on the altar, and the priest would stand before that lamb, and the, the father of the family as their representative would take his hand, put it on the head of the lamb, and he would begin to confess the sins of the family. And as he was doing that, the priest would take a knife and slit the throat of the lamb. And that whole process was showing that the sins of this family were being transferred, in effect, to the lamb. The lamb was dying so that the family could walk out free. And in that moment, they were justified because the lamb was held responsible for sin before God. And this is what Jesus came to fulfill. The Old Testament sacrificial system was just a picture of the reality to come. See, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, remember he said, behold, the lamb of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of the entire human race were laid on Jesus' head. Martin Luther said, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David that adulterer. You will become Adam that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. You will become the husband who has neglected or abused his family, the immoral woman who wrecks someone else's marriage. You will become the drug addict, the teenage girl lying to her parents, the hypocrite in church every Sunday, living a double life, the proud, the selfish, the angry. He became these things and he died for them so that we, you, and I could be innocent of them. As the old him says, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, 
condemned. He stood. And that means when I in faith place my hand on him, Jesus, my sin becomes his. His righteousness becomes mine. Simul justus et peccator, simultaneous it happens. It's not that I become righteous enough that he declares me righteous, but while I am still a sinner, he declares me righteous because he gives Christ's righteousness to me. God's grace justifies us, but it also redeems us. This is a different image, redemption means to buy something back, to restore, to set free from slavery. It's an image that would have been taken from the slave market, and it's an image repeated throughout the New Testament. We don't really use this, these words, redeem or redeemed or redemption, very much in our day, but in the New Testament, they were used all the time. And, and part of the reason was that in the first century, they had slaves, Now, one of the things you need to understand, and people get mixed up about this sometimes, that first century slavery uh, was very different from the slavery we think of that happened in the past in our country's history. And one of the differences is this. Back then, uh, slaves could actually purchase their freedom. Slaves could redeem themselves, you know, pay enough money, and they could go free. And that's at the core of the meaning of this word, redemption, to be freed from slavery, but I want you to understand, you, you see it in the word, you understand it, there's always a cost. What is the cost? Well, Paul says we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption is not possible apart from the work of Jesus. It's tied to his work. Think about this, who paid the price? Jesus paid the price to set us free from the slavery to sin. We're not slaves anymore if some of you aren't tracking with this, uh, see if I could help you out. Remember that, that great scene everybody knows from that classic theological movie, Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> where Lloyd trades their van in, you know, for a moped for their cross-country journey, you know, because it's going to get much better gas mileage. And Harry says, Lloyd, just when I think you po- couldn't possibly do anything any dumber, you go and totally redeem yourself. That's sort of what it means. You are restored. People sometimes use the word redeem when they buy something at a pawn shop, buy it back, and maybe you, know, you got in really hard times and you had to pawn your engagement ring and you finally get enough money and you hurry to the store before anybody else gets it and you, you buy it back. You call that redeeming it, right? Uh, we, we use that word sometimes also. Maybe this will help to talk about coupons, we say we redeem coupons and we, we use a coupon and the coupon has a like cash equivalent. It's worth something in real money for what otherwise would be a useless, worthless piece of paper, right? I mean, I don't know if this will help you, but like Winco, you know, around the holidays, you know, there's free turkeys. You guys know about that, right? You know, if you buy enough groceries, you know, you get a free turkey. And so like you go and to the register, and you got this turkey, and the clerk says, this turkey's gonna cost so much, and you say, not for me, you hand them your coupon. Turkey is redeemed. What did you pay? Nothing. What did the manufacturer or Winco pay? Full price. The turkey, of course, don't forget, is the real hero because the turkey paid it all. <laughs> your, your coupon like just connected you to that, right? 
And that's how you get saved. And you can use it, whichever one of those stories connects with you, Dumb and Dumber or Winco coupons, whatever. So you present your faith in what Jesus did as yours, and boom, it is yours. Jesus paid the full price to buy us back, to redeem us from condemnation to sin. He offers it to us freely, but never forget, it wasn't free. It cost him everything. Number four, our salvation is paid for by Christ's propitiatory sacrifice, or Christ's sacrifice propitiates God's Wrath, And this comes from verse 25. We said Jesus had to pay for his justification and redemption, and now we see what it cost him. Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I'm pretty confident this isn't a word that uh, any one of us have used in casual conversation like this last week, okay? And so you're probably wondering about what it is. Well, let me explain I want you to notice a couple of obvious things here. Paul says the father put the son forward, so he initiates it. Uh, Jesus voluntarily agrees to it. Uh, It is a sacrificial act that happens, but I think what is most clearly drawn out here, and this is why I think that scholar Cranfield says we, we see the innermost meaning of the cross, is that Jesus' death on the cross involves appeasing God's wrath, absorbing placating, turning away the righteous wrath of God. In other words, our salvation is free, but it was not cheap. In his body, the son bore the penalty that sinners owed to God. Jesus' death involved what theologians call penal substitution, and that just means Jesus took our penalty. Jesus satisfied the just demands of the law. He bore the Father's wrath against sin, thereby reconciling believers to the Father. That's propitiation. And why I'm saying this, it's important for you to know, there are uh, some people kind of out there who who don't like this word and don't disagree with this idea. Um, A number of uh, more liberal theologians will say, no, 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 on the cross, Jesus wasn't paying for sin because God is not a vengeful God who's angry at sin or who wants to punish sin. If anything, on the cross, Jesus was just demonstrating the depth of God's love for us. Been a couple of people who kind of come out in recent years to express this. One of them is a Christian songwriter named Michael Gungor who who wrote that really popular song, Beautiful Things, a few years ago. Maybe you remember that. And he said this, the idea that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful. It's horrific. He says, I would love to hear fewer Christian artists sing about a father murdering his son. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, stop singing. And I think it's kind of ironic that the guy who wrote beautiful things could be so blind to the most beautiful thing of all. I beg to differ because I believe in the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. The cross is beautiful. Another person, William Paul, a young author of The Shack, which I don't really recommend. I know some people like it. 
Um, he said this in another book he wrote later called Lives We Believe About God. He said, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge, and rightly so, better know God at all than this one. Again, I beg to differ. Contrary to the author of The Shack, God's righteous anger towards sin is not a contradiction with his love, but a necessary corollary of it. I mean, just think about this. We all understand this at the core of our being. When you love someone, you hate whatever destroys them, right? See, if you love a cancer patient, you hate the cancer that destroys them. And that's how God feels about our sin, Sin destroys God's good creation. It destroys the glory and righteousness which are the foundation of his creation. It destroys us. So he hates, he's angry at sin. And Jesus came and took that anger for us. By doing that, God demonstrates his righteousness. Uh, Paul says because he had passed over sins previously committed. I wanna point that um, out real quickly. Uh, in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, the sins of all the Old Testament saints that had, had, had never truly actually in reality been atoned or paid for. They'd only been passed over. Why? Well, the lambs that they sacrificed couldn't actually pay for sin. And the Old Testament recognizes that. Uh, Psalm 51 says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Those sacrifices were only symbols of what God in his son Jesus was going to one day do. It took a perfect man living the life we were supposed to live, dying the death we deserved to die to pay for them. And that's what God was doing before. He passed over sins, but now that Jesus has come, Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, that means after the cross, so that he would be righteous and he could declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, at the cross, God was able to accomplish two things that seemed like they might be contradictory. God's righteousness or justice was satisfied. In other words, his righteousness was upheld and we were saved. See, for God to be righteous, sin had to be punished. And again, people, people sometimes say, well, why couldn't God just forgive it? Why couldn't God just say, well, okay, I think we've all learned our lesson, everybody back in the pool. It's all good. It's because, and again, this is something we know in real life, it's because forgiveness, real forgiveness, always requires a price to be paid. Go back to you stealing my car, okay? Don't steal my car, okay? I don't want anybody stealing my car. But let's you say you steal my car and let's say you wreck it and let's say um, I decide to forgive you. Who pays for what you did? Well, in the situation that I've just described, I do. The car doesn't miraculously go back to the way it was before. And it's true in every case where anyone grants forgiveness, there is a price, there is a cost, something has to be paid. 
And invariably, the person forgiving is the one who suffers something. Forgiveness always implies suffering. That's what happened at the cross. God suffered in his son Jesus. He absorbed the consequences of our sin into himself. And then sometimes people are like, well, I just don't think there needs to be a payment. And if you say that, it only means you've never really suffered. It's an interesting thing to read the accounts of people who have suffered grievous, horrific sins, people that have been abused, people that have been raped, people that have experienced genocide. They understand this. You know the story of Uriah, Bathsheba? David commits adultery uh, with, with Bathsheba. He has Uriah murdered. And when Nathan confronts David and David breaks, confesses, Nathan the prophet says, the Lord has taken away your sin. I want you to imagine, if you could, that you were Uriah's mother in that room right then. Wouldn't there be something within you crying out, no, it's not that easy. There has to be justice. Proverbs 17, 15 says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. You see, it takes a massive death to make the wrong David committed right, and Jesus, God's son, experienced that instead of David. Righteousness has to be restored for there to be peace. And that propitiation of God's righteous anger can either be accomplished by us in hell or poured out on Jesus on the cross in our place. So understand the Bible teaches the cross was not just Jesus showing us God's love. Jesus was taking our place. He died for us, taking our punishment. And and again, I, I wanna give you one more illustration. If Jesus wasn't actually paying for sin, then how in the world would that be a demonstration of his love? You know, people that don't like wrath and blood sacrifice want to say, well, God was just showing how much he loved us. But think about it. If nothing was really happening in actuality on the cross, then how would that be love? A couple months ago, Dan and I took a, a short vacation down to Palm Springs. We'd never really been there. We went on some hikes out in the desert and, you know, we're kind of way out in some places. And a few times we got, you know, up like on some cliffs, you know, kind of looking over and looking out across uh, the desert, the valley. And just imagine this scene, okay? Imagine I said to her, you know, I love you so much, sweetheart. And she says, how much? And I say, this much. And I jump off the cliff. Is that love? No, that's idiocy. That's absurd. It would only be love if it was like accomplishing something, you know, like if a mountain lion came charging at her and I stepped in the way to protect her. Otherwise, and this is the theological term, it's just stupid. (laughs) Jesus' death is only loving if it shields us from something, and it did. Jesus shield us us from the wrath of God. He paid for sin. And so therefore in the cross, God could be righteous while he declared us righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's where I wanna end this, the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? Faith is the hand on the head 
of the lamb that says Jesus is mine. I, be, I believe that Jesus became my sin bearer. The Greek word for faith is, is pronounced pistis, and it, it means to lean your weight on or to join yourself to. It is not a, a blind leap into the dark, and we're gonna get into this a lot in Romans chapter four, but faith essentially is a commitment of yourself, your life, to someone else based on what you know about them. And we have faith in Jesus because we believe that Jesus, God's son, loved us so much that he gave his life on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God, to pay the penalty of sin that we should have paid so that we might be set free, so that we might be made right, so that we might be brought into the very family of God, adopted into God's family. We believe that, and therefore, we are saved. And this why is why Jesus is the only way, because he's the only one who could do that. Jesus is the only one who could solve our universal problem, which is sin, by becoming our savior. And so therefore, we have faith in him. And I wanna leave you with this question, do you believe? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't done that yet, I wanna offer you that opportunity today and you can just express that desire to believe in him. I'm not even gonna tell you the way to say it. You just need to say, I believe. You turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus. Will you believe? If you will, if you do, I wanna encourage you to let someone else know about that. Maybe me, one of our other pastors, maybe a friend that brought you, but let them know what you've done. And if you've done that, I wanna invite you to do the next thing Jesus says, which is to be baptized. We're gonna be baptizing in just a couple of weeks. May 7th is the next time we're gonna be baptizing, and we wanna offer that to you if you've taken that step. Jesus has forgiven your sins. He has made you right with God. You're gonna follow him. Would you bow with me as we pray? Thank you, Father, for Jesus, your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. And Lord, we confess once more that we do not deserve anything that you have done for us, but we in faith receive what you give us by your grace. Lord, we have turned from our sins, we repent, and we have placed our faith, we have believed in Jesus. And so you tell us those who do those things are forgiven, are given new life, are saved, become members of your family. Lord, our prayer is that everyone who hears these words in this room and uh, online uh, today or even later, Everyone who hears these words, Father, will come to know you through your son, Jesus. We love you, and we're so grateful to you. We worship you. We pray all these things now in the name of Jesus the Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And all God's people said,